Warning, if you took out the offensive parts, this podcast would be eight minutes long and consist mostly of prepositions and pronouns. This week's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by the new encrypted wireless service provider for Islamic terrorists, Sleeper Cellular. Are you looking for a phone company with terrible puns and the Taliban bandwidth to get you more Akbars in more places? Then search no further. We detonate better than a TNT. Sleeper Cellular. Can you fear me now? Legal disclaimer, Sleeper Cellular is not a real thing. Donald Trump, if you're listening, there's no need to ban all cell phones in the United States. And now, the scathing atheist. This is Kyle, the Facebook napkin pope. And the divine napkin has revealed to me that we have, in fact, evolved from filthy monkey napkins and sanitary napkins. It's Thursday. It's December 10th. And it's only 15 more days until Jesus wasn't born. And a very merry unbirthday to him. I'm No Illusions. I'm Heath Enright. And from black and white and redneck all over, Valdosta, Georgia, this is The Scathing Atheist. On this week's episode, Bryce Blankenagle returns for some more morbidly morose Mormon memoirs. Donald Trump considers branding refugees with a serial number. And David serial. Smalley will learn that he'll always be David Biggie in my heart. But first, the diatribe. I get inordinately bent out of shape over grammatical shit. You know, not so much the, oh, you ended that sentence with a preposition, which is a style choice, not a grammatical rule, but more when people say stuff that just doesn't make sense. You know, like when they say something is very unique or that they could care less or that they're an agnostic atheist. That last one especially drives me batty. Unlike the other two examples, that one matters. You know, it's not just a pedant cringe that I have to subdue in polite company. It's a detrimental perpetuation of a myth that benefits theism. There is no such thing as an agnostic atheist or a Gnostic one for that matter. And I'll concede up front that I'm going against the grain on this one. You know, I'll freely admit that plenty of prominent secular voices, far more respected, far more educated, and far more intelligent than myself would vociferously disagree. But I just so happen to have every dictionary of the English language on planet Earth in my corner, so I still feel confident enough to make that claim. So before I get to why it's wrong and why that matters, let me back up for anybody who isn't familiar with the term. You, you see this in one very specific instance, usually in conjunction with a little chart. And when you see it, and when you hear people making the point associated with it, they're usually making a valid point, but they're making it using the wrong words in a consequential way. Usually starts when somebody will say to them, you know, oh, you're an atheist. Oh, well, I'm an agnostic because neither side knows for certain. So it's more intellectually honest to just admit that you don't know and you can't know. Now, clearly, this is fallacious logic, right? Theists are making claim X based on evidence Y, and atheists are just saying evidence Y is insufficient to justify claim X. That's not the same as making the claim negative X. But for some reason, this is a really hard concept for some people to get their heads around. So we're forced to develop little teaching aids like seven point scales in the chart that I'm bitching about. And you probably seen this chart, but for those of you who haven't, the y-axis is like atheism to theism, the x-axis is gnosticism to agnosticism. You just Google agnostic atheist, it'll be the first image that comes up, I'm sure. Now, the short form of the argument breaks down the word agnostic into its Latin roots, a as in without, and gnosis as in knowledge, without knowledge. 
And then you do some rhetorical hocus-pocus about the difference between knowledge and belief, and voila, you've created agnostic atheists. Because we're talking about what we believe, not what we know, and agnostic refers to knowledge. Which would be fine, I guess, if etymology was synonymous with definition, but it isn't, and that's not what that word means. So let's turn to the dictionary and see what the verdict is. According to Google, the word agnostic means, quote, a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence of God or of anything beyond material phenomenon, semicolon, a person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God, disbelief. Notice that the entire definition revolves around belief and nowhere in it is the concept of certainty or level of certainty introduced. But wait, there's more. Merriam-Webster defines it as, quote, a person who holds the view that any ultimate reality as God is unknown and probably unknowable, colon, one who is not committed to believing in either the existence or non-existence of gods or of a god. That could not be more damning to the concept of an agnostic atheist. The friendliest definition to that usage I could find was at dictionary.com, which said, quote, a person who holds the existence that ultimate cause as God and the essential nature of things are unknown and unknowable, end quote. So, like, you know, you can shoehorn the four-point chart into that one, sort of, but you got to wriggle it a bit. Central to every definition I could find was the concept that one neither professes nor denies a belief in God. In fact, I couldn't find any non-wiki references that even give a nod to the definition you would need to concoct that little chart. But you know what? Maybe you don't trust all the dictionaries. Maybe you want to act like Neil deGrasse Tyson saying he's not an atheist by claiming that usage defines the word, not the dictionary. It's not a good argument, but I would win in that case too. Because when you look at the Pew Religious Survey and you see that like such and such a percent of people self-identify as agnostic, what do you think they mean? Are they saying that they've taken no side on the God question, or are they saying they lack certainty in the side that they have taken? What do people who self-identify as agnostics mean by that? Or hell, let's move this outside of the religious landscape altogether. You know, the word was coined to describe a position on the God question, but even the dictionaries recognize that the usage has expanded beyond that. In all of the entries that I quoted above, they include a second definition for uses like politically agnostic. So what does that term mean to you? You know, if somebody described themselves as politically agnostic, would you assume that they meant well, I lean one way politically, but I'm not absolutely sure that I'm right. Of course not. You'd assume that they meant that they weren't taking sides. Or if you and your buddies were arguing about like which Indiana Jones movie was best and one person said, hey, I'm going to remain agnostic, what would you assume they meant? And if I still haven't convinced you that agnostic does not refer to a level of certainty, consider how damn near useless a word it would be under this alternative definition. If agnostic meant I have an opinion on this subject, perhaps even a strong one, but I'm not absolutely certain to the point where no amount of evidence would convince me otherwise, what in the world could you be gnostic about? Yeah, maybe a few moral precepts, I guess. But other than that, one would be agnostic about everything. I'm agnostic about whether a lion's going to rape me before I finish this sentence. And if that's what it means, why would we bother having the word? And look, this is not just some pedantic word geek thing. Set aside the fact that anybody convinced by this chart needs to do nothing more than look up the definition of the word agnostic to refute it and think for a second what an amazing concession atheists are making when they propagate this fiction. We're saying that the question of God's existence somehow belongs in a separate category of knowledge, one that exists on these multiple sliding scales of certainty or whatever. Or at best, we're just confusing the subject by being way more specific than the people that we're talking to. God claims are just like regular unjustified claims, and I'm no more agnostic about them than I am about Lamarckian evolution or the green cheese theory of lunar formation. I can't rule anything out definitively, but theistic claims are no less silly than those ones and deserve no more consideration or agnosticism.
Now, look, I, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are times when this visualization can be useful in making a very particular point. But only if we're very clear that the whole construct of a Gnostic atheist is just there to fill out that corner of the chart. That's not a real thing that exists in the world. And if you're standing there saying to yourself, no, it is a thing that exists because I'm a Gnostic atheist, that's only because this chart has fooled you into thinking that that's a thing. By its mutant definition, being Gnostic about anything at all would be a gross error in intellect. An essential part of the definition of agnostic is unknowable. That's what the word means. And if you want to be all solipsistic about it, sure, nothing is knowable. But clearly, that's not what we're talking about here because that would make it a useless word. And this is not an argumentum ad absurdum because in order to get to the point where God claims to man agnosticism, you already have to be at the point of maximal absurdity. To say one is an agnostic atheist is a contradiction in terms at worst and a redundant modifier at best. Agnosticism is the middle ground. That's what the word was coined to mean. That's what the dictionary says it means. That's what the common usage and understanding dictates. And that's what makes sense from a perspective of lexical necessity. All that being said, I look forward to hearing how wrong I am. They're talking about your Jesus. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight is the jolly bearded man who sees you when you're naughty and raises Heath Enright. Heath, are you ready to rip your fucking eardrums out of the Christmas music yet? Oh, fuck those carolers and the one horse open sleigh they rode in on. Oh, God yeah. damn it. And also, I wish someone told me when I was a kid that they were not saying seeds you when you're sleeping. Because I heard seeds you. <laughs> seeds, yeah. Would have made the whole Santa thing way less creepy if I knew the real words. It's a, a common mistake. It's a song about Santa Claus coming. Like, what, what are you supposed to think? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was definitely willing to get jizzed on by a fat man for a ping pong table back then. Well, sure. But that image still cost me a lot of sleep. Yeah, I don't better at ping Probably pong but cost me a little now too before we start off the headlines too i should note that uh there won't be a this week in misogyny this week looks like nobody did anything sexist since the last episode so we decided to give lucinda her first week off all year she's earned it in our lead story tonight from the prayerified air file the new york daily news ran a front page headline last week following the tragic shootings in san bernardino california that read quote god isn't fixing this Cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes, end quote. Mike dropped. And by cowards, they mean a whole bunch of politicians who are terrified to suggest any sort of gun control because that would require giving up large amounts of money from the National Rifle Association. And by meaningless platitudes, they mean sending tweets to massacre victims that suggest hoping really hard is the best thing we can come up with to cut down on gun violence yep, in this country. That's it. And as is often the case with brutally honest headlines, it sparked a large media controversy about so-called prayer shaming. And what a bullshit phrase prayer that is. Look, shaming. if you yeah. try to solve national problems by talking to the voices in your head, you should already be ashamed of it. Well, you shouldn't need the fucking New York Daily News to get you there. And if you actually think some dude up there with magic powers needed to fix gun violence, if only you prayed hard enough, you should be ashamed what a shitty prayer you are, right? <laughs> One way or the other, the shame's already there. We're just pointing yeah, it out. I'd like to think so. Okay, so just to give everyone an idea of scale here, in 2014 alone, the NRA spent about $30 million on buying politicians. Get you a lot of politicians. Which means the American gun industry stands to profit more than $30 million a year by preventing any kind of regulation. Clearly, yeah. And it's certainly no coincidence that last week, the Senate voted against... 
I'm going to say that again, against a bill that would require background checks for suspected terrorists looking to purchase guns. In case it's not clear, the only people to benefit from this vote are suspected terrorists and gun manufacturers. Right, yes, exactly. And, of course, politicians that get campaign donations from the NRA all the time. But getting back to the issue of prayer, if if prayers work, I reject my premise. Prayers don't work. No. But if they did, then why the fuck weren't all the religious people praying to prevent mass shootings before they happen? Right. If prayer works, then this is all their fault. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, big part of the problem is people arguing against common sense gun control measures, which is a group that has lots of overlap with that prayer group of people. Mm-hmm. So... If prayer works or doesn't work, lots of blame for religious idiots who blindly support the NRA. In all other cases, it's up in the air. But again, there are no other cases. No, it's A or not A. It's one of those two things. And in all of the fuss about all in news tonight, the evil sentient head fungus that animates Donald Trump's long dead corpse through a parasitic connection to his brainstem finally discovered the too far for mainstream Republicans to follow line when he called for America to close its borders to Muslims. Trump's campaign officials detailed his plan with reluctantly straight faces, explaining that it would apply to both immigration and tourism, but Muslim Americans who are currently serving abroad in the military would still be allowed to come home. Because the shit oh, he's saying is good. so fucking crazy that you honestly have to clarify that he doesn't want to just leave the American-born Muslim troops wherever we have them now. That's the level of insanity we are now dealing with here. Yeah, And this was clearly a compromise to his original plan. Some advisor definitely told him, plan be a lot more palatable if Muslims in the military are allowed back in. Right. And right. Trump said, well, I was against letting them enlist in the first place, but fine, fine. Let the Muslim killing Muslims come back. I guess that's fair. They've already sold their soul. Confident that he was proposing at worst the sixth most racist thing America has ever done, Trump took to the cable news stations to defend his suggestion by repeatedly comparing himself to FDR. Because the best thing he could think of to say about his xenophobic bullshit is it's no worse than Japanese internment. Meanwhile, every person in the Republican Party that might ever need to be elected to anything ever moved with equal haste to distance themselves from Trump's proposal, insisting that there's a right and wrong way to frighten the electorate with imaginary and exaggerated threats based on the innate fear of the other. And this is the wrong way. (laughs) Yeah. And even though a bunch of Republicans disagreed with him, it was less of a less of a hard no and more (laughs) of a. Let's go ahead and hold on to our Trump cards for a bit longer. Let's yeah, table. right, right. No bad ideas, you know, just bad timing. Let's table that for now. Circle back to it for the midterms in a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Don't want to blow Could your wad useful. already. Now, the proposal also drew condemnation internationally and from every Democrat who still can't believe the you do know he's Donald fucking Trump right argument doesn't persuade people on the simple veracity of its interrobang. In fact, about the only people who didn't condemn Trump in the wake of this nonsense were Ann Coulter, who snaps the necks of undernourished puppies with her vagina, Ted Cruz, who was basically only willing to say he liked Trump's enthusiasm, and Jerry Falwell, who was happy that Trump distracted everybody from the shit he said a couple of days earlier about how we should all grab guns so we can shoot Muslims to death. And speaking of the Donald and his uh, nuanced understanding of immigration policy, freelance hate speaker Brian Fisher weighed in on this issue as well. During a recent episode of his Focal Point radio show, Fisher explained that Trump's plan to ban all Muslims from entering the United States is uh, way too progressive, way too <laughs> naive. 
because that still leaves millions of Muslim people here in the country. And our internment camp infrastructure just can't handle it at the moment. <laughs> and uh, that's why we need a more realistic strategy, oh, like, for example, his idea to buy all the American Muslims a one-way ticket back to uh, Islamistan, where they all came <laughs> yeah, from. Right, yeah. What? Not, not a real place that currently exists? Persia? <laughs> doesn't matter not here well I, I mean i'm sure if you forced him to guess he'd say camel stand but that doesn't invalidate his proposal i mean all those people flee in syria have obviously created a buyer's market so this is probably the best time to do this <laughs> yes. jump in now so uh clearly suffering from debilitating swamp crotch at the time i'm guessing <laughs> fisher had this to say about his plan to pay for Shipping and handling about three million people to Muslim Liberia. <laughs> Quote, Let's use American resources to help these people find a home in the Muslim world. They can be at home, you know, don't have to chafe against our liberty, don't have to chafe against our Judeo Christian value system. End quote. So, uh, point being, Fisher sees the United States as less of a melting pot and more of a chafing dish. <laughs> a, Chafing dish full of mussels marinara that closely resembles the current situation in his genital area. Of course. And that's a serious problem. It's going to require major expenditures. Plus, um, exporting all the Muslims is going to be expensive, too. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And believe it or not, I Top checked. Creams. That's the first time that Brian Fisher's swamp crotch has ever come up on this show. I was surprised. And right. apparently Bucket the 5-0 refers to IQ news tonight. The Supreme Court of Hawaii has decided against bringing $1.4 billion in construction jobs to their state and furthering the vanguard of human knowledge in order to appease the mighty volcano gods who threaten to step heavily upon their villages. This decision to retard scientific knowledge comes in response to a relentless effort to halt the construction of the 30-meteor telescope due to a strong objection to whatever the fuck the protesters have to object to to get them to stop building the fucker. Because when these anti-intellectual, dirt-munching hippies failed in their 79 efforts to get construction halted on environmental grounds, they switched to, oh, well, then this was all about respect for the native culture then, the whole time. That's what we meant <laughs> yeah. to say. Apparently... Ancient Polynesians were big into Scientology and they're sensitive about fucking with the indigenous Caucasian volcano demon. Well, right. Demons. Yeah, you might recall us talking about this story back on episode 113 when construction was temporarily halted by a bunch of people literally standing in the way of scientific progress. According to the petition circulated by the anti-telescope activists at the time, the Mauna Kea volcano is a sacred place that, quote, the native culture is held in reverence for millennia, end quote. <laughs> Sorry, Which means millennia? that those forward-thinking <laughs> Polynesian islanders were worshipping this fucking particular volcano at least 12 centuries before human <laughs> beings first set foot in Hawaii. Millennia? Are you sure about that, guys? Maybe we were worshipping from afar with a telescope. Wait, never mind. <laughs> Nothing. I didn't say anything. So the multinational conglomeration seeking to build the TMT hasn't given up, of course, though they admit that the legal wrangling makes it very unlikely that they're going to meet their goal of having the telescope operational by 2024. For their part, protesters celebrated this latest victory by throwing rocks at a windmill and wondering how magnets work. Meanwhile, the American <laughs> scientific community has to go tell the rest of the world that we're not going to be able to know shit like we promised because we don't want to piss off the decorative statue outside of a cheap tiki bar. <sighs> and in salt and prepper news tonight. Got a couple new updates about disgraced televangelist and apparent result of Rick Moranis getting raped by a goblin, Jim Baker. <laughs> We've covered this guy a few times before, but just in case anyone's not familiar, he was a prosperity preacher who was forced to resign from his so-called ministry due to a sex scandal. 
Then he was convicted of felony fraud, spent some time in jail, and now he's back on TV selling buckets of dehydrated doomsday food, hoping to pay back millions of dollars that he still owes the IRS. That's all true. Unfortunately for his creditors, that's us and everybody else in the country, by the way, pays taxes. Baker's business took a hit last week when somebody actually reviewed the food in the buckets. And uh, suffice it to say, it was not a rave. Um, No No. Michelin stars for him. And then to make matters even worse... The apocalypse did not happen again. Again. <laughs> well, did not I mean, happen. But it, what a stupid business model. I mean, don't the people watching Jim Baker think that they're going to get raptured? <laughs> I mean, is he just hoping they'll buy it for the heathens to murder each other over once <laughs> right. Jesus unleashes the demon locust so they'll have something to watch from heaven? I, just, I don't get how this is supposed to work. Yeah, and uh, neither does Kylie Moore from NPR who decided to buy a small sample of Baker's prepper buckets to share with some co-workers and review them. And here's what she had to say about the impressions of their panel. Quote, We couldn't agree on which was worse. The thick potato soup that felt like eating wet cement, the strong chemical overtones in the chocolate pudding, or the disturbing radioactive orange of the macaroni <laughs> and cheese. End quote. Not great for business. But in fairness to Baker, when the real end times happen, you're not going to be focused on the flavor of your shitty food very much, what with uh, all the rape scorpions. And right. The, yeah, exactly. Getting raped by rape <laughs> scorpions. Well, now, all that being said, I might have to talk to my lawyers about Kylie Moore lifting my Yelp review of Cracker Barrel, though. It's pretty, pretty much word for word. <laughs> and uh, by the way, just in case you were wondering if Mr. Baker's an awful human being that deserves all the punishment he gets... And then some, he is. You're, you're wondering correctly. <laughs> However, <laughs> the reason this all happened to him isn't God's wrath, according to Baker. No. Nor is it felonious activity, which was my first guess. It's my second after it's, God's wrath. It's actually demonic witchcraft. <laughs> I had that at five. According to his story on a recent episode, years back, Baker heard from a very reliable source that, quote, all the witches, all of them, they're all agreeing they're going to destroy the television ministries, starting with Jim Baker, end quote. <laughs> so that was underachieving the witches, holy shit. And in hateful 8 million news tonight, the 75% of Philadelphia residents that aren't Catholic are rightfully pissed after the mayor's promise that no taxpayer money would be spent on the recent papal visit turned out to be about as true as the cracker turning into flesh thing. Despite assurances that the World Meeting of Families would reimburse the city for all expenses incurred by the Pope's visit, the bill the city sent to the WMOF represented only a little over half of the total costs, leaving Philadelphia taxpayers to pick up the remaining 47%, or about $8 million. Million with a mill. It's not like Philadelphia's residents have a bunch of extra time to put together all that cash. That's crazy. As I understand it, on the playground is where they spend most of their (laughs) Just chilling out. Max and relax and all cool. It's not realistic. No. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Now, Philly's mayor, Michael Nutter, that's really his name, insists that this shortfall doesn't represent a violation of church-state separation because the money was being spent on police protection, not the promotion of the Catholic religion. Of course, the fact that it was but, police protection for a person who was just there to promote the Catholic religion kind of dampens the effectiveness of this argument. A little bit. As does the fact that he's responding to the accusation of lying to his constituents and cheating them out of $8 million by saying, well, sure, I did that, but that lie probably didn't violate the Constitution. 
I'm almost sure. <laughs> it's also fully compliant with the Magna Carta. Right. It jives <laughs> with the idea of manifest destiny just about right. <laughs> it's approved by the corporate overlords and the TPP. It's all good. <laughs> the things I say are relevant. I'm sure they are. And finally tonight, from the Fecal Matters of the Heart file, former Malaysian diplomat Mohammed Rizalman pleaded guilty before the New Zealand High Court last week for uh, however many laws he broke by following a woman home, taking a shit on her patio, what? and then forcing his way into her house wearing nothing but a t-shirt. What? That's right. That all <laughs> happened. And it appears he's trying to claim this is a religious freedom issue. Is he? His argument went something like this. Uh, if Jesus took a shit on Mary Magdalene's porch in the Bible, we wouldn't even be talking about this. That was basically his argument, which is terrifying because he's probably right. Well, I, I mean, we would be talking about that. I mean, we would probably have three skits a month about that Bible story. But yeah, yeah, no, the point is about like Christians wouldn't be, they'd be protesting outside a waste treatment plant screaming about how life begins at porch turd or something. So, <laughs> so according to his testimony, Mr. Rizelman believes in black magic, and apparently he was testing out a new spell that he had just learned in which you get a woman to fall in love with you by, very literally, shitting outside her house. Uh huh. He also claimed that in Malaysian culture, if a woman smiles at you, which I guess this woman did, that's her signal for you to go ahead and stalk her using fecal wizardry. <laughs> of course. Which... That's Makes me understand completely why lots of women wear the full niqab over there. Oh, yeah, good call. It's either smile prevention to avoid shit warlocks, which is very reasonable, <laughs> or this guy's a lunatic and also Islam is stupid and misogynistic. One or the other. Or both. Or both, yeah. yes. But, like, I mean, even even if you had infallible shit magic, is Donald ducking your way into her bedroom in the middle of the night uninvited really step two? <laughs> Because I've had women tell me they love me, and I didn't immediately follow that up with an unannounced schlong helicopter and a home break-in. Not immediately. There were well, steps in between those things. Bottom line, this guy may have had a sincere belief, but he couldn't hold it. No. Which is obviously a tagline for the movie based on his life, which will be coming out soon. Can't of wait. course, we will need 30 seconds on the clock for the story of the Kiwi Leaks scandal. <laughs> Titles for the fecal-themed romantic comedy, go. All right, all right. Right up my alley. How about Gitchard Rear and Stulia Roberts in Shitty Woman? <laughs> what about Branny Hall, the truth about scats and prairie dogs? <laughs> Google prairie dogs if There's you didn't understand Bonus that. jokes in there. I love it. Okay, I got another Stulia Roberts classic. How about My Mest Ends Betting? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> what about... Uh, I'm going old school, a little Clark Gable. What about Shit Happened One Night? <laughs> One of my one favorites. Fine Bidet. Be the sequel. <laughs> and of course, Spotting Hill. It's an international heart to shart. It's a beautiful <laughs> kind of. It's a shart topper. Yeah. What about uh, Classic Love Story? Romeo and Stuliet. <laughs> Stools flush in. Of course. Um, Ten Things I Defecate About You. <laughs> um, sex and the Shitty. What a Girl Wants. Right. In her cup. To share with a second girl. <laughs> you knew it had to make it, it in here somewhere. Come on, people. Come on. Uh, maybe Bridget Jones' diarrhea? Come there you on. go. Obviously. <laughs> All right, I got one more. What about 
there's something irregular about Mary. <laughs> A.K.A. Heapless in Seattle. There we go. There we go. And with the calm confidence that comes with knowing that we've reached our weekly poop joke quota with more than half a show still to come, I guess we can close out the headlines for the night. Heath, thanks as always. Marbles. And when we come back, Bryce Blankenagel will return to tell us about the massacre portion of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. In January, I was fortunate enough to play a small part in an extraordinarily successful fundraiser organized by David Smalley and all the fine folks over at Dogma Debate Radio. Using a unique blend of altruism and masochism, the Dogma Debate team put together a 24-hour live broadcast event to raise money for the Foundation Beyond Belief, and in a single day, their indefatigable efforts netted an astonishing $51,000 plus for secular charities. Well, it's been 11 months, and apparently that's how long it takes David to recover, because he's at it again. This weekend, the team's going to be gearing up for another 24-hour broadcast. From 2 p.m. Eastern on Saturday the 12th to 2 p.m. on Sunday the 13th, the Dogwood Debate team will once more take to the airwaves or the fiber optics or the Wi-Fi or whatever, this time in an effort to raise money for one of my favorite secular organizations, the Secular Student Alliance. To tell us more about the fundraiser, David Smalley was kind enough to take a few minutes away from his preparations to chat with us tonight. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Now, are you doing anything to get yourself physically prepped, like um, like drinking raw eggs like Rocky, running upstairs, anything like that? You know, I I, I figured out from last time, nothing works. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. I, you know, I, 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 since then, there was this kind of this running joke that I was going to be doing, you know, monster energy drinks nonstop. And um, I, I have since sworn off of monster energy drinks. I don't drink them at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even drink that much coffee anymore. Uh, I, I have actually, the one thing I've done to prepare, to be honest, is I've just kind of tested myself. myself. I've just stayed up for 26, 27 hours mm-hmm. uh, working. And then I would just crash for like 10 or 15 hours and then I would come back and do it again. So I've done that two or three times. That's the only actual prep I've actually done. So I know now that it's at least possible for me to do it without any chemical or drug enhancements. And for whatever it's worth, by the way, in solidarity with you guys, I've been staying up for 24 hours as well. I'm not consecutively, but um, you know, I'm just trying to <laughs> yep. do my part. <laughs> that helps. So now, if you don't mind, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the work they do, can you give us sort of an overview of the Secular Student Alliance, what they're all about? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of kids that go to school, whether it's high school uh, or college, and they can't really come out because there's not a safe place. There are tons and tons of Christian groups, mm-hmm. and uh, there's really no way to get speakers or, or uh, you know, if you want to have a Jerry DeWitt or a Dave Silverman or someone out to, to give a talk for your school, there's not really a lot of support in a lot of these schools, whether it be high school or college. And so a lot of people who are secular will just either attend the Christian groups or not be a part of any groups at all. And so the Secular Student Alliance allows students on campus to create these groups and uh, for secular students to get together. Now, look, it's not to say that that Christians aren't welcome to join these secular groups, because, of course, we know secular is not the same as atheist. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a I think it's a great concept. Uh, students really, really need it. You know, when I was talking to August, who is the executive director of the SSA, I just started asking him, look, what are your what are your fundraising goals? How is this working? We had about a 40 minute conversation. He's like, you know, things are going OK, but. It looks like we're going to be about $40,000 short of our fundraising. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to have to lay people off or they're going to have to shut down some of the groups? If there's a group somewhere in Kansas that needs paperwork to start, but they don't have the staff 
to help the group get started, that's a group that needs to be started in, in, in a state that's going to be very, very religious. Let's, let's get that student to paperwork. Sorry, we don't have staff available because we're short on our funding. We had to lay people off. We don't want that to happen. So it's very ambitious, but I told August, I said, look, last year our original goal was $5,000. It doubled to $10,000 two days before the event. And we ended up hitting, we personally within our group raised 31,000 and then there was a $20,000 match. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a $51,000 night, which was unbelievable. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, But (laughs) this year it's even far exceeded that. And, uh, we're really going to have to step up if we're going to, if we're going to help them cover their $40,000 gap. Right on, right on. Now, I also think it's very important that I point this out. When, when all the atheists get together at the League of Sinister Secularists for a baby souffle or whatever, the primary bragging rights is whose hour earned the most money in David's latest 24-hour fundraiser. We, we did pretty good with our hour last year. We weren't quite at the top, but we were close. So I want to let all the listeners know that if you're planning on giving money to this fundraiser or to the Secular Student Alliance, or maybe you were planning on giving some money to the show this week, maybe you give it to this fundraiser, maybe between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. Eastern time. I'm just going to toss that out there. Um, <laughs> now, who else is going to be joining you? Who's, who, what, what is our competition this year? Yeah, the only one apparently that matters is the scathing atheist. Right, uh, yeah, of course. Midnight Central, all, all times that I'm going to rattle off for Central. I know you do things on Eastern. But I'll just tell everybody, if you're confused about it, go to dogmadebate.com slash SSA. Dogmadebate.com slash SSA. The entire schedule is there. There's only one spot left at 7 p.m. And we've been holding that for someone that we thought was tentative. And I may just take that and make it a David Smalley segment. I don't know. But right now, it's, uh, man, we've got, I'll just, I'll go real quick. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're starting off with cognitive dissonance, and that scares the hell out. Oh no! <laughs> uh, I, I was hoping to bump them to about four a.m., and I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't make that happen. Uh, cognitive dissonance, Tom and Cecil, and apparently that segment's going to have to be about seven minutes long because that's all I can take of those guys. But uh, they're starting us off at one p.m. Central Saturday. Then we've got Todd Stiefel, the guy who cheated last year. Oh, right, right, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I gotta give him credit because he, he won last year, but he won because he cheated. He cheated in such a beautiful way, and he's the one that I honestly give him the credit for launching us into that ridiculous amount. Uh, he ended up doing a sextuplet match just because he wanted to say the word sextuplet on the show. And he ended up donating a, a little over $10,000 during his hour to match what everybody else had donated. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was incredible. Uh, right after him, we have Matt Dillahoney. Uh, nobody knows that guy. He's he, he's an up-and-comer. We're, we're looking for him <laughs> to make a change. Uh, Callie Wright from Gatheist Manifesto Podcast. Peter Bogosian's going to join us. J.T. Eberhard. Mr. Deity. Brian Keith. Oh, awesome. Going to join us. Yeah. Uh, actually, on my way to the studio, I got a text from Dave Silverman. He confirmed for that 9 p.m. Central slot with American Atheist. Stephanie Gatormson with the Richard Dawkins Foundation. We're doing something unique this year, too. At 11 o'clock Central, we're doing uh, what we're calling Exmo Hour. Um, David Michael and Bryce Blankenangel, who both host individual sort of Mormon-based podcasts, are going to be here in studio hosting an entire hour about Mormonism, getting as many ex-Mormons as possible to donate during their hour. Right on. Then there's a scathing atheist at midnight, central. Jerry DeWitt's going to join us, Joey Kirkman, the barroom atheist, beyond the trailer park. Um, Adam Reeks of the Herd Mentality. I know you know that, psycho. Oh, yeah. Uh, Shelly Siegel is going to join us. Uh, Andrew Seidel from FFRF. Brian Fields from Pennsylvania Nonbelievers. No religion required. Chris Matheson, the writer of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and the Story of God. He's going to be with us. And then we're closing it out with Seth Andrews and Himmet Mehta. 
How cool is that? What a rock star lineup. Yeah, no kidding. Man, that's uh, okay. So my work's cut out for me. So listeners, remember, you know, you, you, you're not an, you're not a Christian. You don't have to buy people a bunch of Christmas presents. You just take that money that you were going to spend on Christmas, toss it towards the Secular Student Alliance right around 1230 Central. Um, all right. So now if, if our listeners want to tune in, is it uh, dogmadebate.com that they're going to go to? Yes, uh, it's dogmadebate.com. It's going to be live streaming right there on the side, on the main side. When you go to dogmadebate.com, there's a big blue thing at the top that says listen. You just click that and the thing rolls down and you can hit play. Uh, Spreaker is also our broadcast partner. They're going to be actually broadcasting it from their main page as well. So if you, for some reason, do not want to go to dogmadebate.com, you can also find us on Spreaker. And if you don't see it on the main page, search for dogmadebate. And we don't have the link yet to where people can donate, but that should be ready uh, Friday or Saturday morning, uh, right before we start. So uh, there's going to be a special link. So don't just go donate to the generic Secular Student Alliance thing. We're going to have a link that we're sending everybody to, uh, and I think they're going to just put it on the main page of secularstudents.org. So we're trying to make this as easy as possible for people to donate because we really want to hit this $40,000 goal, and that's a pretty Pretty high bar, Noah. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And of course, we'll have all that linked on the show notes for this episode. And if you follow us on Twitter or Facebook, we'll be uh, posting links as soon as the festivities get underway. Well, David, good luck and uh, thanks for being part of the show tonight. I appreciate it and good luck to you and your listeners for your hour. Thank you, sir. just dropping in post facto for a quick update on that last interview. The night before this episode aired, David got with me to let me know about a scheduling change. Tom and Cecil from Cognitive Dissonance will now be on at 7 p.m. Central to make room for, wait for it, Dan Dennett to lead things off at 1 p.m. Central. Again, the full schedule will be linked on the show notes at scathingatheist.com. In today's media environment, it's easy to think that the threat of Islamic terrorism is somehow unique, as though the idea of a theocratic offshoot of a major world religion is something this country has never faced before. But as we learned last week, some of the most serious threats from religious extremists our country has ever faced came from terrorists wearing magic underwear. So rejoining us this week to cap off the story of the Mountain Meadows Massacre is Bryce Blankenagle of the Naked Mormonism podcast. Bryce, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me on again, Noah. It's always fun talking to you. Oh, absolutely. Well, you can't, you can't, you know, not close off the serial. Now, I, I, <laughs> speaking of which, I want to make sure everybody knows that this is a continuation of a story from last week. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, like if you listen in archives and you listen backwards or whatever, we encourage you to go back, listen to that one for all the context and then come back for this one. We'll wait for you. Also, trigger warning. You will never look at a missionary on a bicycle the same way after hearing this gruesome shit. So with all that out of the way, Bryce, would you mind giving us a quick refresher, kind of remind us where we left off last week? Absolutely. So you had the Baker Fancher party that left Arkansas and they passed through Utah and there was a lot of social and political pressures that were going on at the time that were riling up these people, uh, the Mormons and non-Mormons alike in the area. And um, it all sort of came to a head on September 7th, 1857. And that's when a group of Mormons and Native Americans teamed up together to start sieging basically this uh, Baker Fancher party. Okay, this completely unrelated, just wrong place, wrong time group of people trying to make their way across Utah. 
Yes, very, very clearly. There's absolutely nothing that connects them to the death of Parley P. Pratt or of Joseph Smith or Hiram Smith or anybody else in Mormon history. They were just victims of circumstance, and that's it. Okay. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get to the blood and guts. So... All of the sieging that came up uh, ended on Friday, September 11th, 1857. Lee, uh, John D. Lee, as we talked about in the past episode, so he was leading this siege into the uh, of the Fancher party that was camped out in this mountain meadows. Mm-hmm. Um, by this time, the the train had circled all of their wagons. They had dug into the ground. They were running low on shot and powder. They were running low on any food or any water. They didn't have any water left. They were all starved and thirsting to death. It was a very, very horrible situation. And very important to emphasize, and of course we talked about this a great deal last week, is that they do not know who's attacking them yet. It's just shots ringing out from the distance, and the only people they've seen are Native Americans. Yes, So what happened was Lee and a few other Mormons came into the camp and they were, they were very convincing and they were flashing Masonic and temple signs and they, you know, they, they kind of convinced the camp that they weren't the people that were sieging them. Mm -hmm. So they were able to negotiate over a two hour span, a truce between the party and whoever was out there in order to get them to safety, quote, before the Indians could renew their attack, end quote. This is the turning point. At any point, the Mormons could have just continued to lead him out, take him to Cedar City. It would have been done and over with. Rumors would have circulated, but the church would have survived. And they wouldn't have had to kill all these people. It would have just been the, you know, 20 or 30 that were dead up to this point, and that's it. But they they went through with it. So they organized them. They split up the men and the women and children. They had all of the women and children walking in a group a little ways ahead of all of the men. And they had all of the Nauvoo Legion escorting the men of the the party in the back. Um, So after they marched for uh, less than an hour towards Cedar City, Higby fired a shot in the air and then gave the damning order, quote, Halt, do your duty to Israel, end quote. Which I guess is Mormon for Allahu Akbar. Exactly. Very, very well said. (laughs) Yes. So at this point, all of the militiamen um, of the Nauvoo Legion turned their guns towards the men of the Fancher party and fired. And they killed almost all of the the adults, the adult men at that time. And this (sighs) this first wave of onslaught. And (laughs) the next half an hour can be classified as nothing other than a bloody fucking massacre. And we, fortunately or unfortunately, we have multiple firsthand accounts of it. And everything that we talk about on this episode is either first or secondhand accounts. So let's just, let's just keep that in mind for what we're going to talk about here. Right. And also, again, like I said, I wasn't fucking around when I said trigger warning. I, I know it's hard to imagine that those starched white shirts are so stained with historical blood. But the Mormons were some evil motherfuckers back then. So if you want to, you know, like, you know, like fast forward to the feedback or whatever, I'll, I'll give you a time stamp on that in, in post, which is 50 minutes and 31 seconds. All right. We're getting into some firsthand accounts here. This is from somebody that was named Nancy Huff, who was four at the time. Quote, they began killing everybody they came to. Captain Jack Baker, who was, you know, the Baker Fancher party that he was one of the heads, mm-hmm. had me in his arms when he was shot down and fell dead. I saw my mother shot in the forehead and fall dead. The women and children screamed and clung together. 
Some of the young women begged the assassins after they had run out on us not to kill them, but they had no mercy on them, clubbing their guns and beating out their brains. End quote. Wow. Uh, jaws on the fucking floor. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another firsthand account, uh, six year old Calvin Miller. He watched his mother, father, two brothers, three sisters killed. And he spent some time as his mother was dying, pulling arrows out of her back until she, she bled out from the injuries. Well, that's a hell of a memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As uh, you know, only six years old. How, you know, imagine that sticking in your mind for a while. And imagine that you know that kid and you have to try to find the right Hallmark card for him. Yeah, they just oh. <laughs> don't make one for sorry you had to pull arrows out of your mom until she bled out. Yeah, it, I don't think you could even find those dispensers. I mean, that, that's a pretty <laughs> fucked up card. <laughs> um, next account is from a six-year-old named Rebecca Dunlap. Um, she says, quote, I ran behind a sagebush when the massacre began. Two of her older sisters were killed right near her and were laying dead by her side. She heard her baby sister crying and ran to find her. She found her entwined in her mother's arms, but that mother was cold in death. Uh, end quote. Sarah Dunlap, who was an infant, who was Rebecca's younger sister, was then, quote, shot through her right arm below the elbow by a large ball, breaking both bones and cutting her arm half off. End quote. Ugh, it, it just gives me chills. Um, Rebecca, yeah, no at this kidding. Point. I mean, and, and to those who who are listening to this and saying, "Wow, this seems like you know pretty gruesome to dwell on," I ask you, how can you really portray you know the horror of something like this without these kind of details? You know, I thank you for bringing them. And, and, and to those who would say, like, you know, hey, that's a little much. You know, I, I simply have to say, like, this is a, an account of history that is largely unknown. You know, yeah, and, that's and it. the exactly. only way, the, the only reason it is is because not enough people have heard these brutal, disgusting details of, of an army of, of people turning against now just a group of unarmed women and children. Exactly. And I mean, let's be clear that all of the most horrible things that happen when, you know, one tribe of people takes over another tribe of people happened. Right. So at this point, um, <laughs> Bloodlust kind of seized upon the feeble minds of these men that were d conducting this slaughter. Um, one account that we have is um, of a man named William Stewart. He commanded a younger Mormon man that was part of the militia to kill a woman who had been hit in the, you know, really hard in the head. And she was just regaining consciousness, probably with a concussion or maybe brain damage at the point. Mm -hmm. As she was, you know, kind of whirling her head around, trying to gain her, her surroundings and see all of the dead people and the blood around her, the boy refused this order that Stuart gave to him to kill this woman. So Stuart took it upon himself to, quote, plunge his bowie knife to the hilt in her side, end quote. And as hard as it as as it is to believe, that's not the worst part of this story. No. Um later Stuart, this same guy, William Stewart, an evil motherfucker, recounted, quote, he took the damned Gentile babies by the heels and cracked their skulls over the wagon tires, end quote. I mean that's br that's brutal enough to be in the Bible. 
That, yeah, right? But you start to see the, how evil these people were when, uh, like a man named George Adair would, uh, later claim, quote, in his drunken revels, he would laugh and attempt to imitate the pitiful crushing sound of the skull bones of the children as they struck the iron bands of the wagon hubs, <sighs> quote. So he would, you know, hang around the bars telling his buddies about how he was cracking baby skulls against fucking wagon wheels. What the fuck? Wow. Yeah, no. Puts a lot of shit into perspective. So now, okay, so women are getting massacred. Children are getting massacred. But the plan was not to kill anybody who was too young to tell tales. So I, I almost hesitate to ask, but what happens to the kids? I mean, their parents are dead. Everybody else is dead. What happens to these kids who are too young to tell tales? Well, that's actually a fucked up and really good question. All of the children that were left alive had to be gathered up at the end of the massacre, right? You have 120 people laying around on the ground, these children's parents, um, family members, mm-hmm. and their blood is soaking into the ground. Um, there's just rivers of blood running out of this place. And um, <laughs> this is taken from uh, this the book that I got most of this source from by uh, Bagley. Quote, while many of the children were in the wagons of McMurdy and Knight during the slaughter, others were scattered on the ground near their dead mothers or were walking numbly about. So they were like shell shocked at this point. Uh, Kling and Smith chose which ones would live. Quoting Johnson, I was told at the time Kling and Smith selected 17 of the smallest children together and handed the older ones over to the Indians who killed them. When the wagons with the crying and blood-stained children reached Hamblin's ranch, Rachel Hamblin took them into her shanty and surrounding yard. She did her best, one woman caring for 17 children, in addition to her own. Some babies were still nursing and wailed for the comfort of their mother's breasts. All of them were shrieking in terror and anguish. This is quoting from Rachel herself. Two of the survivors showed outward wounds. Sarah Baker's ear was bleeding and little Sarah Dunlap's arm still oozed near the elbow, the bone being entirely severed. And then she goes on to say, the inner damage was still worse. Young hearts and minds in terrible trauma. Though they had not had peaceful rest in days, the children cried all night. Yeah, right. And this is all coming after this siege and being dehydrated and being starved and all of this shit, which is coming after this long trip where nobody would trade with them. And Jesus, all the psychological trauma being multiplied on these four or five year old kids is just amazing to think of. Absolutely. And what's even more fucked up beyond all of that. So it said that there were 18 children gathered up, but there was uh, only 17 that left. At the close of this massacre, there was one girl that was, uh, you know, 10 or 12 years old that uh, they decided she was too big and could tell tales. So they killed her. And they did it in a really sinister and horrible thing. They brought her up in front of the 17 remaining children and they executed her and said, this is what will happen if you talk about what's happened here today. So as if all of these children hadn't been traumatized enough, they take this, this 12 year old girl up in front of them and shoot him, shoot her in the fucking face and say, this can be you. You don't forget that. I'm sorry, you just don't forget that. Uh, You probably try, but yeah, no shit. Now, let's talk about the aftermath of this a little bit. Like, 
obviously you can't cover up 140 deaths. So what happened? That's a great question. Basically, the Mormons kind of copped to it in a roundabout way. They said John D. Lee, the guy who we've been focusing on for most of this, uh, him and Higby were kind of the main guys that headed up this whole thing. But John D. Lee was used as the scapegoat for the entire affair, and he was sentenced to death by firing squad. And Brigham Young keeps his hands clean the entire time. Not only that, um, Brigham Young, he found the wound and he kind of shoved his finger into it, you know, after dipping it in a big vat of salt. So what he did, being chief of the Indian Affairs in the Utah Territory, he claimed that the Native Americans were responsible for everything that had happened. And he <laughs> actually, this might blow your fucking mind here, but he billed the United States government for $2,200 for oxen and wagons that were lost to the Indians. <laughs> And then $3,527.43 for an itemized list of 171 pairs of pants, 135 shirts, 39 and a half pounds of gunpowder, 109 pounds of lead, and 14,000 firing caps, plus other miscellaneous items. So we paid for this. The American taxpayers paid for this siege. They paid for half. <laughs> they they got this bill that uh, Brigham Young sent to them because that was what he did as head of the Indian Affairs. Um, anytime right. there was something that would happen, he would report to the government. The government would give money or support or whatever to help ameliorate the problem. Well, that's what he did. He billed the American government for the Mountain Meadows Massacre that was arguably perpetrated by Bloody Brigham himself. Wow. And beyond that... The, the, all of the belongings that were, you know, part of the Fancher party, he seized them. He brought all of them and they were just absorbed into the almighty Mormon machine. And I mean, you gotta admit, this guy had some serious chrome plated balls. Yeah. Like I said, one of the <laughs> best villains we've got in American history. All right. So, yeah. I, but, but again, like, I mean, okay. So like there was already this tension and everything else going around. I mean, this didn't, this couldn't have just you know, faded into the woodwork. Hey, whatever happened to all those Fancher people? You know, like, so what was, what was the reaction around Utah? <laughs> well, there was uh, a lot of people talked about it and, um, there was actually, it wasn't just in Utah. There were quite a few newspapers and magazines that were writing articles on it. Like what the fuck happened? How did 120 people just end up dead? Mm -hmm. What the fuck? So, um, one of the most pervasive of all of these critical writers was somebody from the LA star, which was, you know, uh, Los Angeles newspaper that was close to the, what happened. I mean, LA was the biggest city that was nearest to Cedar city where this happened. So they were like, Hey, you know, this is close to us. And everybody that it lives in LA interacted with the Mormons at some point, this could have been any of us that got fucked over. Yeah. Right. So, they kept writing these articles asking very, very scathing questions. And of course, Bloody Brigham wrote a letter to the editor of the LA Star that said, quote, unless you cease publishing such infertile lies about Utah and her people, your lies may, to your utter astonishment, become truths, end quote. Oh, that's a clever way of saying I'll bust a cap in your ass. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty fucking clever there. Again, great <laughs> villain here. I mean, I you know I don't want to admire uh, a guy who like massacred 120 people and everything, but as far as villains go, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah, at some point you have to sit back and say that motherfucker played it well. I mean, for everything that went down, nobody should have gotten away with that. Well, especially nobody should have got paid for it. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, he just he got off scot free. 
Uh, and yeah, and he he walked away from the thing richer than he was before. All right, so let, now is that and d- does the Mormon Church still just like bl- scapegoat this this Lee guy and and say Brigham Young had nothing to do with? It? I mean, they, they, I mean, obviously <sighs> they don't teach about this in Mormon Sunday school, but I'm, I'm sure Mormons basically know about it. What is their sort of official apologetic for it? Well, the Mormon Church has sort of addressed it. Um, not in the way that you would expect somebody issuing an actual apology, but they did in, I think it was 1990, they erected a memorial in Mountain Meadows that said, you know, here lie the, the bodies of 120 people that were slaughtered by the Native Americans. And it's this really PR friendly bullshit thing. And that, that's how they teach it is that the Indians were responsible for all of this. So here lies a bunch of people that the assassins we hired killed those bastards. And what's even more fucked up about that is when they were erecting the monument, they were digging there with excavators and they're like, holy shit, there's a lot of human bones here. We should, uh, we should look into these. So they sent them off to a couple of different research agencies, uh, through forensics, uh, forensic studies. They found that there were a lot of children with, uh, cracked open skulls. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so all of this, when you attack the credibility of what happened and you have all of these firsthand accounts and then you excavate the site and you find literal archaeological evidence of people that have been killed by blunt force trauma to the head, all of this really kind of comes together. It's like, yeah, this really happened the way that it's described in the firsthand accounts. This is fucked up, dude. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Well, I yeah. mean, you know, thanks for bringing such an upbeat story for the holidays for everybody. You know, something we can <laughs> happy to do it. <laughs> all uh, gather around the, uh, the the campfire and chat about. So, uh, but honestly, though, I want I want to say it's amazing to me that everyone in this country doesn't know this story, and I really appreciate the light that you're shining on it and on all of Mormonism's skeletons with your with your podcast and the work that you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, thank you for coming on and for allowing me this podium to uh, to spread the, I would say the good word, but it really wasn't that good this time. <laughs> no, not so much. And of course, if you want to learn more fucked up details about the Mormon church that they'd rather you not know, you should definitely check out the Naked Mormonism podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use, or just check the show notes for this episode where you'll also learn how you can support Bryce's efforts. Bryce, thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Noah. Before we relinquish your ear holes tonight, I wanted to remind you one more time that if you enjoy Bryce's spotlights on the darker chapters of Mormon history, you can help him expand his reach with a couple of books by donating to the GoFundMe campaign linked on the show notes for this episode. You can also, of course, check him out on his podcast, Naked Mormonism, which will be linked right below that. Also, while we're talking about money anyway, remember, this coming Saturday at 1 a.m. Eastern Time, tune in to hear me on David's 24-hour broadcast-a-thon. Remember, secular charities don't get as much love come Christmas time. With a donation to the Secular Student Alliance, you're going to be helping a great group that does great work, and you're going to be making us look pretty bad ass in front of all the other atheist podcasters i mean you know not that i worry about shit like that that's that'll be linked on the show notes as well of course anyway that's all the blasphemy we've got for you tonight we'll be back in 10,022 minutes with more if you can't wait that long be sure to check out a brand new episode of god-awful movies with eli bosnick on tuesday at 8 a.m eastern we're going to be doing a christmas movie about the salvation army this week i should be spontaneously diatribing throughout obviously it wouldn't really be an episode if i didn't thank heath enright for knowing his shit both euphemistically and literally i also need to thank the lovely lucinda lusions for providing this week's warning and yes she'll be back next week for this week in misogyny and she misses you more than you miss her i also want to thank david small 
Molly one more time. The dude is literally working 24 hours a day and still made time for us. Also, one more big thanks to Bryce for dropping some knowledge on me. And while I've got the thanks trainer rolling, I also want to thank Kyle, the Facebook napkin pope, for his combination of infallible Farnsworthian wisdom and menstrual blood jokes. But most of all, of course, I need to thank this week's best people, Timothy, Jonah, Corey, David, Alan, Andrew, Jackson, Omri, Chris, Gerardo, James, Douglas, Christopher, and Mike. Timothy, Jonah, Corey, and David, whose IQs are higher than a starving man in a Colorado bakery. Alan, Andrew, Jackson, Omri, and Chris, whose opinions carry so much weight, American Airlines charges them for extra baggage. Gerardo, James, Douglas, and Christopher, whose ejaculations make the Paris gun look like a Roman candle. And Mike, whose cock is so impressive that local roosters have started saying Mike a doodle do just out of respect. Together, these 13 thoroughly, thermally, thurling thoroughbreds made Thursdays more thirstful this week by giving us money. Not everybody has the exemplary genitals it takes to give us money, but if your balls and or vag are up for the challenge, you can make a per-episode donation at patreon.com slash skatingatheist, whereby you'll earn early access to an extended version of every episode plus other bonus shit, or you can make a one-time donation by clicking the donate button on the right side of the homepage at skatingatheist.com. And if you'd like to help with giving money to podcasts, make your breakout and rape locusts, you can also help us a ton by leaving a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast rating vehicle of choice. You can also stroke our egos by following us on Twitter or liking our Facebook page. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at skatingatheist.com. All the music used in this episode was written and performed by yours truly, and yes, I did have my permission. So you guys have heard the story of me shitting my pants at a bar mitzvah, right? You've heard that story before. I have not. No. Oh my god, this is my best story that I ever have.